Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we're going to talk about COVID booster shots and the confusion around those. Also, have you got fever and chills and muscle aches? COVID? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's the flu. Well, we're also going to be talking about the flu vaccine, macular degeneration and other blindness, eye diseases, heart health, and those exciting, or are they really exciting, secret sex affairs. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Fortunately, uh, my guest has uh, appeared. You've heard his voice many, many times before, and he's agreed to come back tonight. Thank goodness. Uh, he's an associate professor, College of Medicine and Allied Health Sciences, University of Sierra Leone. Dr. Kindrachek's research focuses on the circulation, transmission, and pathogenesis of emerging viruses that pose the greatest threat to global human and animal health. He is none other than the esteemed Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, and he joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. How are you? I'm doing good, Maureen. How are you doing? I am doing fine, thank you. I scratch my head every week thinking, we're really still here <laughs> a year and a half wow. later. I mean, things are getting a little bit better, but they're also getting a little bit worse, in particular in rural areas in this country. Um, and now we're also talking about the boosters, and, and a lot of people have been confused by the pandemic, and you know, and certainly we learned a lot of the science as we went along the way, and now there has been some, uh, we've had lots of talk about uh, boosters, but there's booster confusion, there's mix and matching. Um, anyway, what are your thoughts? Let's, let's start with the rural um, groups, where people tend to be, uh, the vaccination rates tend to be lower in rural than urban areas. And we're seeing that in particular in the Northern Health Region in British Columbia, where a lot of healthcare resources have had to be deployed. People have had to be transferred, transported out of there. Um, what are your thoughts? It's not necessarily just the anti-vaxxers or the people who have dug themselves in and said, I'm never getting a vaccination anymore. What are your thoughts on no. um, the lower rates? It's, you know, it's a good question, right? Like, listen, I, I get a lot of uh, interesting emails and, and certainly uh, some, some angry emails um, you know, about the, you know, the, what we're kind of facing right now in the South. Certainly with the increased messaging here in Manitoba about trying to increase vaccination rates specifically in, in our southern health region. It's, you know, it has become very polarized, right? I think that, you know, we were able to get through to, you know, many of the hesitant people. Though that being said, I, I spent an hour on Friday uh, chatting with uh, you know a guy in his twenties that that is hesitant um, that just hasn't felt like anybody has sat down to to talk to him and and actually you know heard what his concerns were or to talk directly about uh, about what we see with with the vaccine. So you know I think it's still a combination of things and I think part of it is you know we are all unhappy we're all I think nervous about what's happening and certainly we're all confused. If you're not confused. I think you've probably not been living in, in COVID for the last, you know, 19 to 20 months. Um, it's, a, it's a very difficult time. And I think, you know, the, the best we can do is continue to try to figure out how do we get vaccination rates up? And if we can't get vaccination rates up, what do we do to try and get containment of transmission in those areas? And, and how do we try and limit the virus from, uh, from exposing those cracks? Because Delta will do that. It's, it's difficult. Public health folks have a 24-7 job right now, and, and uh, I, I, my hat's off to them. I don't know how they do it, but they keep finding ways to, to keep on top of this as well as they can. I know. It's just outrageous. And, you know, um, one place I should never go to is Facebook <laughs> because <laughs> I get very frustrated. And occasion, and I'm not that a person that gets frustrated easily. To, honestly, I'm not, but I just see some of this stuff on Facebook and, you know, it's non-medical, never mind scientific people making, you know, giving advice to, you know, or, or spreading misinformation. Uh, there was something about if you, uh, if you're unvaccinated and you've had a baby and your baby needs to go to the neonatal intensive care unit, you will not be allowed in to be with your baby. I mean, and people were saying this is outrageous and they're taking our rights away and how could they do that to these mothers and we might as well have, everybody should just have a home birth anyway. And I mean, a, a baby who required neonatal intensive care would never survive at a home birth, you know, and, and so it's just so, and it's all about these rights. And I just think it is just such misinformation in this country. We've had 
more pregnant women in intensive care units than any other time in the history of intensive care units. Uh, you know, mothers uh, get much sicker when they are pregnant. We've seen that as well. Um, there's just so much inf- misinformation about it, which also contributes to the confusion, would you say? Absolutely. And, and you know, I think the, the difficult part about this, too, is that we don't know everything, right? I mean, I, I, I put out a post today about the fact that, listen, we, you know, we, we still have people that are talking about eradication of this virus. We've got to you know, start to understand, and certainly from a public messaging standpoint, talk about, listen, this is where we're at. We, you know, basically, we know there are a number of animal species that, that are carrying the virus that uh, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out you know, how it's circulating and what it's doing. But this has certainly complicated our ability to fully eradicate this virus or even eliminate it. So we, we need to be transparent and we need to also say to people, listen, we don't have all the answers because the stuff that we're doing right now, we've normally had decades to, to figure these, uh, these questions out. Now we're doing this in an expedient amount of time, um, but there are going to be things that, that are going to change on dime. So it's, it, it's very, very difficult. And like I said, I, I understand, I sympathize with the public because I, I get why they're frustrated and certainly frustrated with some of the changing messages. Um, we feel the same way. I wish that this was you know, easy and just kind of textbook uh, virology, but it, it's not, and, and, and nor is it going to be anytime soon. Absolutely. I I have so much to say about that, but I did uh, receive a text message here that I'd like to get to. Uh, Dear Maureen, can you ask the doctor if there is any more, if there are any more variants on the horizon? There's always variants on the horizon. And, and, you know, listen, I, I say that not, not trying to be, you know, facetious or sarcastic, but we have to appreciate, listen, the virus is mutating all the times it moves through people, it circulates through the population. Many of those mutations don't amount to anything, but each mutation makes a new variant. Um, so we, we have to be appreciative that the virus is going to continue to change stuff. That's fine. But it doesn't necessarily mean a change of behavior. When we start seeing changes in behavior, that's when we get concerned. Now, we've, we've seen variants of concern that have emerged so far. The more this virus transmits, the greater likelihood there is we're going to see more. And I think certainly the trend would suggest that, yeah, there, there is going to be something else. Um, but we also have to appreciate we haven't had a variant for which the vaccines have not been effective against. And I think, to me, that actually is one of the greatest strengths we have, is that the vaccines have continued to work very, very well, regardless of what the virus has thrown at us. Um, one of the things that I had heard in a conversation, actually, with some other people, because um, people, there are some people that feel that we're all being microchipped. Um, by those who, those who have actually been vaccinated, uh, I'm including myself, um, that we've been microchipped. And so some other people who had been vaccinated, they were saying, well, the microchip is in the syringe. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? <laughs> there are no microchips in the syringe. And they're like, they just want to keep track of, of how many um, doses that they're given. <laughs> they're not that smart, number one. <laughs> But I'm like, no, 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 we just grabbed, I've given vaccinations. We're just grabbing the same old syringes we've been using for years and years. Um, but uh, things like that, This, these are people who are, are for um, uh, vaccinations. And, you know, anyway, there's just so much misinformation out there. So what about the booster? What are your thoughts on, and, you know, it's a it's a loaded question, your thoughts. And we, <laughs> yep. we have about a minute or so until um, we go to break, a couple of minutes here. Um, thoughts on the booster and who should be getting them and are they necessary? And what about people who say, well, if it was, if the vaccine were working, why would you need another booster? Yep. Um, why do they need to microchip us three times? Let me just ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, listen, I, I will say right up front that when we talk about, you know, if the vaccines were working, they're working very, very well. When you look at certainly protective immunity from symptomatic infection or hospitalization, um, uh, there was a, a recent uh, um, uh, piece that came out in the Financial Times that that went through all the data from the UK, and we've seen uh, Jeff Kwong's uh, data from from Ontario. The vaccines continue to work very very well with with just two doses. We see some drop in in protection from symptomatic infection, but um, it, it is not 100% down to zero. There there is a gradient, and certainly. Uh, lower risk groups, we see still good maintained protection. Higher risk groups, yeah, there's some waning, but um, it's not, again, you know, dropping down to zero. So boosters, I, I think, certainly play a purpose. 
um, with being able to help give us uh, some, I think, increased uh, precautions for people that, that are potentially high risk, that have lower immune responses and that may need that additional protection um, for, for people that are healthcare workers or who are in high risk uh, positions and, and, and probably going to be around high uh, amounts of virus. Yes, I think there's certainly a need for the general public. I still look at this and say, we have a large segment of the world that has not been vaccinated. Um, we need to get control of transmission everywhere, not just here. Otherwise, we are going to be dealing with this for multiple years and, and having these same conversations. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, All Things Viruses, joins me on the line. Thanks so much for staying on the line. We're going to go to the, the uh, caller lines, though. We have Mary um, from Vancouver Island on the line with a question for the doctor. Good evening, Mary. Hi, Maureen and Dr. Kinderchuk. Um, as I understand it, the variants are caused by the virus replicating itself and making an error of some sort when it replicates. I think I'm right about that. I'm not sure. Uh, but so what I, I'm thinking there are a bunch of people running around with only a single vaccine who think that that might be adequate. And I wondered if if I'm correct in this, that that might lead to a stronger variant, just like when you don't take all your antibiotics and you get those super bugs. Yeah, so it's a great question, right? And certainly the one thing we have to think about is that we think about bacteria, we think about viruses, bacteria respond directly to their environment. They, they have, you know, active metabolisms. They can change their gene expression very readily. Viruses don't do that. It's a little bit different in regards to how they respond. So when we look at this idea of variants of, of concern and different variants that emerge, one of, the thing that one of the things we have to think about is fitness of the virus and long-term um, uh, you know, uh, kind of presentation of, uh, of different immune molecules uh, against the virus. So people that have these long-term chronic infections that tend to get treatment, what they have are basically viruses that are continually replicating over time and making you know, additional mutations. Sometimes those mutations actually give a fitness advantage, and that's when we see these variants starting to emerge. So in a fully vaccinated society, if we had people that had underutilized vaccination, um, then we may have concerns where we start seeing resistance popping up. But right now, to be fair, in, in Canada and, and certainly across the globe, there are so many people that are still not vaccinated that the pressure is not there yet. So it could be a problem or a concern over time. But at this point in time, we're not seeing that at least those generation of, uh, of vaccine resistance um, really to, to any extent within the virus based on um, you know, uh, underutilized immunity. Great question. Thanks, Dr. Kinderchuk. Uh, we also, from another part of the country, have another Mary. Mary from Winnipeg, Manitoba is on the line. Good evening, Mary. Thank you for taking the question. I want to ask Dr. Kinderchuk, if um, a variant comes into existence that the first generation vaccine doesn't work against and another vaccine has to be developed, do you think at that point politicians would be willing to mandate um, vaccines for COVID? Oh, good question, Mary. Uh, you know, listen, I, I think that certainly there'd be more pressure to do it. Um, you know, I think the, it still comes down to this idea of will, will we see a variant that will arise that will be fully resistant to, to vaccines? And I think really so far the data we've seen would not suggest that. I think that certainly we've seen transmission advantages, but we haven't seen variants that have emerged that have been able to really outright circumvent uh, vaccine responses. Now, it could happen, um, but certainly the, the, the responsiveness in, in the vaccination programs and, and certainly the, the broadness of the vaccines um, so far has been quite good. So I think that we, we've basically been able to skirt that issue, um, but certainly for the mRNA vaccines, it's one of the advantages that we would be able to at least see rollout of, uh, of matched vaccines very, very quickly uh, following identification, which is why surveillance globally continues to be so important in, in this regard. Dr. Kinderchuk, we're up against the clock. Thanks, Mary. I've got a couple of great text questions. We're going to have to save them for next week about long-haul COVID and also how did Dr. Fauci get things wrong, but uh, we'll talk to you next week. Dr. Kinderchuk, great. thank Thanks, you so Gordon. much. 
Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. You know, it might seem that way, but it's not just all about COVID. There are other infectious diseases that we need to be concerned about. Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Diseases Centre, joins me on the line to talk to us about influenza and how it impacts people. Good evening, Dr. Conway. Good evening. How are you this evening? I'm very well. It's a pleasure to be with you this evening. Oh, thank you so much. The pleasure is mine. Um, so flu season is uh, upon us, if you will, or, or rapidly uh, coming, going to impact us. What, what exactly is influenza and how does it impact people? Well, influenza is not the common cold. Influenza is the flu. It is a significant illness that causes one to be very tired, to have a high fever, to have muscle aches, to have sometimes a cough, maybe even a pneumonia, and be out of commission for a week or two. It was COVID, before there was COVID, it's, it's essentially the same illness, affects about 50,000 Canadians per year. And because of all of the restrictions that were in place last year, we only had 69 cases in all of Canada. So we expect the flu to be back this year. Yeah, that's amazing. How many cases of flu does Canada normally see? Well, we normally see about uh, 50,000 with about three to 4,000 deaths per year. So it is a significant illness. So it's clear that the same public health measures that help us, uh, that, that were put in place to try to reduce the spread of COVID were wildly successful to prevent the, uh, the spread of flu. People got vaccinated at a rate that was 20% higher than usual for the flu last year, wanting to protect themselves. So that also that also played a role in keeping the numbers down. But we do expect the numbers to be up significantly in this flu season that just began. So you've made a bit of a case there for masks, uh, wearing masks not just for COVID, but to prevent flu. Well, I think as we sort of uh, continue our journey through COVID world, understanding that COVID will be around for the foreseeable future, some public health measures will remain in place, I think, for, uh, for the long term. And one of those will be the judicious use of masks, especially if we spend a significant length of time, period of time, with many people indoors. And I think that'll be a good measure to have, especially during uh, flu season. I have to say, knock on wood, I, and I'm so grateful for this. I, I mean, I used to get sick all the time. I'm with patients. I was with, you know, four or five days a week in a clinic, uh, exposure to many, many patients. Sometimes my patient visits are only, you know, 10 or 15 minutes long. Others are an hour long, um, it, but all day indoors. And, you know, when I would get, whether it be the common cold or, or the flu, and, you know, I have not been sick, knock on wood, for a year and a half, <laughs> you know, nearly, nearly coming up to two years, which I am so grateful for. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, you've spent so little time within two meters of, uh, of significant <laughs> numbers of people. That has helped a lot. <laughs> this is true. I mean, I, I abide by all the measures. Plus, my clinic, for the most part, has gone virtual. So I, I understand that patients are going back into uh, doctor's offices and, and clinics, which makes me a little bit nervous um, because the, the virtual clinics have been working quite well for me, uh, very well indeed. Uh, so And for patients as well, it's much more convenient. And, and anyway, I think a lot of us are getting are less sick. Um, so what is... Uh, what are we expecting the medical community? We're expecting a, a much bigger flu season this year. But what's different about this flu season uh, than last in terms of, or the one before that even? Right. So I think that um, obviously we, uh, we uh, base this year's vaccine, flu shot, on last year's cases. And since uh, there weren't so many cases last year, this one is a bit more of a guess. This vaccine, this quadrivalent four virus vaccine, is a bit of a guess, and, and uh, the possibility of a mismatch is greater. So it may not be the best vaccine that we need. The other thing is something that protects us is if there was flu around last year in the community, even if you didn't get vaccinated, it may be that you developed antibodies from exposure in the community to whatever virus was around, and this provides some community protection. Since there were only 69 cases in all of Canada last year, there, there is no such protection. So these two things, along with the fact that we're going to spend a lot more time 
with a lot more people. And the public health measures, we're frankly getting a little bit tired of them, and we may not apply them as well as possible. All of that may contribute to a worse flu season than, uh, than we've had in recent, uh, in recent years. And, and has the flu season actually started? And what are you seeing in your clinical practice? Well, I've not seen any cases. Uh, the Canadian Registry reports four cases to date since the beginning of the flu season at the beginning of the month. So there is some low level of activity, but not yet of significant uh, concern. We're in the period of time where it's important for people to understand it's there, to take advantage of the vaccine that is available and to understand that some of the public health measures need to be maintained in the long term to protect us from COVID and also to protect us from the flu. Now, um, there, there, some of the symptoms of COVID are very similar to the symptoms of the flu. Well, it's uh, the same illness. Yeah. It's, it's basically the same illness. Um, right. And so how does one know that they have the flu versus COVID? I mean, there's so much self-diagnosis going on with COVID. People will be sick. You know, there, there, there has been, you know, public health education, do not go to work if you're sick. But still people are going to work when they're sick. Believe me, they are. And, but they're self-diagnosing. You know, there's a lot of health apps that people have to take before they enter the workplace. And some people say, you know, people are lying on those health apps. But I say they're not lying. They're actually saying, I just have a cold or I have the flu or I have allergies when they've never had allergies before. So what is the best way to differentiate between flu and COVID? So if you have a sore throat, a runny nose, your head feels stuffed and heavy, um, you don't have a fever, you don't have a cough, your muscles don't hurt. That's the common cold. It is still contagious. You should still stay home to protect uh-huh. people around you in your workplace. But it will get better in a matter of days. Stay home, take something to, to reduce any discomfort you might have, and you will get better. Anything that involves you feeling very sick, sore muscles, feeling very tired, not being able to drag yourself out of bed, having a fever, having a cough, feeling that you're short of breath, any combination of all of those things is the flu or is COVID. So I think that requires some attention to speak to a healthcare provider to understand what it might be. My best advice would be to get tested so that we can understand which virus or viruses are circulating in the community at any point in time and uh, and uh, try and reduce their impact. Mm-hmm. Um now, also, what, why is it so important that people get a flu vaccination? You mentioned that it was up 20% last year. So this will obviously prevent people from getting the flu. It will reduce any stress that there is on the healthcare system of all these individuals that are presenting with COVID or the flu and who um, would then have to be diagnosed and taken care of possibly as if they had COVID. And the other thing that we know about the flu is that it suppresses your immune system. And one of the reasons people get very sick and require hospitalization is they get a secondary infection, a bacterial pneumonia, as an example, on top of the flu. So we don't know what the flu right. plus COVID together will cause. So let's, let's make it so that we don't have to see that too often. I don't want to try and, and figure that out, actually. Um, and, and when should people get the flu vaccine? And should, they, should there be concern about getting a flu shot as well as a COVID-19 vaccine? Run, don't walk. As soon as it's available, go, go, go. <laughs> Recommendations from the National Advisory Committee on Immunization that we've become very familiar with over the past year is that everyone should get a flu shot. The uh, high-dose flu shot should be given to everyone over the age of 65, We now know that you can get a flu shot and a COVID shot at the same time. In fact, by next fall, they will probably be packaged into the same vaccine when the time for those fall boosters uh, comes around. So as soon as you're aware that it's available, get it. Excellent. Excellent information. Where can people get it, Dr. Conway? Well, well, usually they're available in pharmacies, doctor's offices, community clinics, uh, and uh, the like. This will be widely publicized. Our own infectious disease clinic started giving them out, administering them about 10 days ago, and we're uh, very much, uh, uh, you know, accelerating our program as much as we can uh, going forward. 
Well, Dr. Conway, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the air and raising awareness about flu. We don't want to forget about uh, the flu season and the potential for uh, contracting flu because it does make people very sick. Absolutely. I hope uh, people read up on the flu and make the right decision to be part of the solution going forward. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We'll check in with you midway through the winter and see how we're doing. It'll be a pleasure. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. During this hour, I'm going to be reading your text and uh, probably in the next 30 minutes because um, anyway, in, in the second 30 minutes of this hour, I'm going to be reading your text and also going to be talking about those clandestine affairs and are they as exciting as we think they are? Maybe, maybe not. And also talking about sexual health and the importance for those um, health-related um, some of the health-related benefits for people who remain sexually active as they age past the age of 35. Um, Just kidding. But uh, right now, joining me on the line, you've heard his voice before, and I'm delighted to have him back. He is a North Vancouver, British Columbia cardiologist or heart specialist who practices with four great colleagues at the North Shore Health, at the North Shore Heart Center and at Lionsgate Hospital in North Vancouver, where Dr. Weisler serves as Head of Cardiology. He is Dr. John Weisler. Good evening, Dr. Weisler. Good evening, Marie. How are you? It's been a little while. Yeah, I'm doing great. It's great to be with you today. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. I'm fine, thank you. Uh, yeah, great to have you back because I have so many questions around, of course, around COVID and cardiomyopathy and arrhythmias after the vaccine and all of that. But we'll wait for that after 9.15. Hopefully you can still stay on the line with me. Um, but right sure. now, um, a headline caught my eye. We've talked about it in the past, but um, the recommendations, there are some new recommendations out for daily aspirin. Can you uh, talk to the listeners about that, please, and the recommendations yeah, so it? It's, it's been, the idea has been changing. So this is with um, aspirin, taking an aspirin today to try and prevent heart disease. So this is for people that um, don't already have established heart disease. Um, but it, it used to be common practice um, as men and women approached their 50s and late 50s, early 60s, that they would start taking a baby aspirin a day to try and prevent heart attacks. Um, the aspirin is a, a type of blood thinner that thins your blood. And when you have a heart attack, you get a cholesterol plaque in your heart that gets disrupted and then a clot forms on top of it and that uh, can block your artery off and and cause a heart attack and so the idea with aspirin it prevents platelets which are parts of your blood that prevents it from uh, clotting and sticking um, and so it makes it can help to prevent heart attacks in some cases um, what we found though is that that practice is um, maybe not a good idea that the benefits are quite small. So the most recent update comes from the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, which is a task force of different experts in medicine and health in the U.S. that make recommendations on best practices to stay healthy, um, uh, you know, throughout you know different ages and as we grow older. And so the advice has changed. It's recommended now if you're 60 or over without already having heart disease, um, that you don't start an aspirin daily. It's generally the benefits are too small and not worth it. And the risk with being on aspirin is a risk of bleeding. It's mostly gastrointestinal bleeding, so bleeding in your stomach, and less common but much more serious, uh, bleeding inside your head, which is very dangerous. Um, and that the risks in many cases outweigh the benefits so that you shouldn't start it for that purpose. And even for younger patients, patients 40 to 59 who are intermediate risk for heart disease or beyond. So they have a few risk factors. They have the the official definition is a 10% or more risk of heart disease in the next 10 years. Um, Even for those uh, individuals who we might have started aspirin on in the past, uh, the recommendation is that you don't do that without talking with your doctor first. And it should be a very nuanced discussion about the uh, pros and cons. Interesting. So who might those people be in the um, category from age 40 to 59 who are at higher risk? Uh, you know, who, who's at higher risk for cardiovascular disease? So people who smoke, number one. So smoking, if you, if you smoke, it's important to quit to try and reduce your risk. That's, I think, of, of the different risk factors, that's probably the highest or the strongest risk factor. And then people with high cholesterol, poorly controlled diabetes, um, um, 
uh, high blood pressure are some of the more common ones. Um, having a family history also plays into this as well. Uh, family history does play uh, does play a role here. So people who've had maybe who've had a father who uh, died suddenly of of a heart attack or had cardiovascular disease. How about um, people who are obese? Yep. So obesity and having poor fitness are also risk factors. Um, these are all worth good things to mention because, of course, with fitness, at least you can often do something about it, right? You can potentially exercise and improve that. And um, lifestyle before going to medications, lifestyle is always step one. So um, to, to sort of keep yourself in a lower risk category where you don't really have to think about, you know, aspirin and stuff like that, it's important to be as healthy as possible. So obesity, um, high stress, uh, poor sleep, other inflammatory diseases all increase your risk for heart disease too. Now, you may or may not have heard of this because it is in the U.S. and I don't want to catch you off guard, um, but have you heard of step one foods? Uh, step one foods, uh, not in detail. I know they exist, but they're, that's a pretty new, the, the details are not, not so much. Yeah, they, you mentioned cholesterol levels, and, and this was allegedly, or you know, it was developed by a doctor, by a cardiologist, in fact. It's a nutrition-based scientific approach to heart health, and it was specifically, she developed it um, because she felt she was putting her patients on statins for high cholesterol, and they weren't feeling any better, they weren't getting any better, and it wasn't actually reducing their cholesterol levels uh, significantly or, or enough um, so that they, you know, would lower their cholesterol. And this, these are snacks. They're simple meals and snacks. You're supposed to take two a day and they have antioxidants in them and high fiber, um, vitamin E, I think. Um, and, uh, it's there anyway, you take two bars a day. It's not that expensive. I didn't, I didn't think, uh, maybe $130 for a month. Um, and uh, there's a money-back guarantee, and supposedly nobody has returned these. Um, to, you know, nobody's asked for them, but I don't know how long that they have been available yet. But what, but what are your thoughts about uh, nutrition? Um, so, yeah, diet, for diet cardiovascular and exercise, disease. Mm-hmm. definitely. Diet and exercise are always, uh, you know, the, the first step. They're always the most important. We, do, we use a lot of medications as doctors because... I think um, in some ways they're a little bit easier to study. Not that they're easy, but nutrition studies are hard to do uh, very well. Um, but nutrition and you know exercise always remain the cornerstone for staying healthy and, and avoiding heart disease. Um, for the step one product specifically, um, you know the, the components that are in those snacks. I mean, they sound pretty reasonable. The snacks sound healthy. The things like antioxidants. Um, they are potentially linked to lower rates of heart disease. It doesn't sort of follow from the studies that we have, which are sort of epidemiological studies that actually taking more antioxidants will actually lower your risk of heart disease. It, you might, it might be intuitive that it might, but it hasn't been conclu- conclusively proven. But the, the snacks seem pretty safe and pretty healthy. The diet that I generally recommend, the one that has the best evidence, is the Mediterranean diet pattern. Um, which uh-huh. has the best evidence from sort of well-controlled trials that changing to that diet does help to reduce the risk of heart disease. And that's been shown both for patients who have established heart disease and also patients who don't, who want to avoid it in the first place. Uh, so uh, so plenty of olive oil, which, you know, and, and, and plenty of um, healthy nuts without salt, uh, low amounts of red meat, um, plenty of vegetables, uh, use of tomatoes, and th- that's the diet too. Where if you like red wine, you can have a glass of red wine most night. It probably has some beneficial chemicals in it. Um, so that, that dietary pattern has the strongest data. Uh, and then you know the step one snack uh, sounds like a reasonable augmentation, I guess, or, or an added bonus. I think. Right. It does. They also claim that um, it can help you lose weight, but they do recommend that you that you change your diet. A point I wanted to make about um, you saying how doctors prescribe medications. I do feel like patients want the quick fix. I even see that in my clinical practice. If they have bladder health issues, say they have overactive bladder, they'll say, can you tell the doctor that I need surgery? (laughs) It's like, well, that's not really going to help overactive bladder. Um, But they want that quick fix, which is, you know, a pill. I'm just amazed at how many people will go on, you know, metformin, for example, for type 2 diabetes versus trying to alter their diet and start exercising, really bumping up their exercise, especially at midlife. It, we we yeah. go that easy that easy way out. 
I, I, certainly, I think that's certainly true sometimes. You know, I, I, in my practice, I, I see, uh, Maureen, I see both types of patients, one that are ones that are determined to never take medications and the opposite that sort of would like the quick fix. Um, a lot of, with cardiovascular disease, a lot of the medications aren't an ideal quick fix. They, they can help and sometimes you need them. And, you know, I also, if, if, it's, if it's really important you go on a medication, I don't want to discourage people. Sometimes they, they really are necessary and they, they can oh, work yes. very well. But but they're not a perfect fix. I mean, with with things like cholesterol and you know blood pressure medications, diabetes, uh, it's it's a often a, a long term commitment. You have to stay on those drugs for for a long time. Um, sometimes, if you are less fit and you become a lot more fit, you can reduce your medications. But it's it's hard to do. So I think in some ways it is easier for some patients, and sometimes the the pills are probably appealing because they do you know if you go on a statin pill you'll drop your cholesterol 40 to 60 percent and you'll you'll see that in about you know three three months uh, so you can get a impressive response and get where you're hoping to go but it is an ongoing commitment to keep that you know the, 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 whatever number it is to keep that reduced which is you know which is so it's often sometimes lifetime or, or long term Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program. Dr. John Weisler, cardiologist, is on the line. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Weisler. We're going to go to a caller, James from Vernon, British Columbia, on the line with a question for the doctor. Good evening, James. Good evening, and thanks for taking my call. Uh, I will try and be very short. Um, My history, I have had heart surgery. I had heart surgery when I was uh, seven years old. I am now 50. And so I have had annual echocardiograms to uh, just check up on my heart every year. Last year, I got COVID, and it was brutal, but uh, pulled through. And two months later, my echocardiogram showed an inflammation of my heart. And uh, my question is uh, regarding the, all the talk around heart issues with the vaccines, I have as yet not had a vaccine because, first of all, I've had COVID. And second of all, I am a little bit hesitant because of what's happening with vaccines and heart inflammation. And given that I have found that I do have heart inflammation, whether that was tied to COVID, who knows. But um, are those concerns, um, I would say, or my question is, are, are those concerns valid in my case? May I just ask you one question? Do you still yes. have the um, inflammation? Have you had a recent scan? Uh, recent um, I've not. I haven't had this year's annual checkup yet. This showed okay. up uh, two months after I had COVID last year in my last year's checkup. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see in my next echocardiogram if that inflammation is still there. But all through the years, this was the first time suddenly I had yeah. some inflammation in my heart two months after having a pretty brutal bout of COVID. Great question. Dr. Weisler? Yeah, so thank you, James, for the question, and a really good question and a, and a timely one. Um, in general, for most people, the risk of getting heart muscle injury or inflammation from the vaccine is much, much lower than from getting it than actually getting it from COVID, uh, somewhere like 30 to 50 times lower. And if you do get it from the vaccine, it's almost always mild, whereas um, myocarditis, uh, inflammation of the heart from COVID itself, um, in many patients is also mild. In somewhere about 5 to 10% of patients, it's more serious and causes um, more serious development of heart failure where your heart doesn't squeeze properly or dangerous arrhythmias. So for most people, COVID-related myocarditis is, is also mild and will get better, uh, but it, it's more, much more common than from the vaccine and potentially much more serious. As for the specifics of yourself, uh, James, I would be cautious with the vaccine uh, and I would go slowly. In, in general, of course, uh, most uh, like my, myself, like most medical professionals, will recommend the vaccine for most people. But with your history of heart muscle inflammation, um, we want to be careful not to re-aggravate that. So usually I would suggest that you um, make sure that you've gone back to normal, you know, no symptoms, and then a normal scan. And then we wait three months before you undergo the vaccine. Um, it's not clear whether having had... Um, you know, myocarditis inflammation from COVID if you're more likely to also get it from the vaccine. But certainly we want you to be healed and back to normal. And, and again, you know, we, we usually allow at least three months. 
before before thinking of the vaccine. So in your case, I would go slow with the vaccine, and I wouldn't I wouldn't um, go right away, which is a, it's, it's a rare rare situation. Uh, most people can get the vaccine quite safely, but with your history, I would be cautious for sure. Great, thank you for the answer. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for the call, James. Um, and uh, I just you've touched a little bit upon it, Dr. Weisler. Uh, and I've had a few people of late tell me, you know, one is a guy who works out uh, quite a bit, uh, runs, lifts weights, is in great physical shape, cares about his nutrition. And he said that he got an arrhythmia after he said he was running after about maybe a few days after he got the vaccine and his heart rate was up. And he said, oh, maybe it's just him or whatever. And his heart rate just wouldn't come down. And his heart rate was up for um Anyway, extended period of time. Just quickly, we have about 30 seconds left. Um, do the vaccines affect one's heart? Um, any, so any effect on the heart rhythm is very rare. Um, sometimes what he may have noticed um, when he was running, his heart rate was going higher because his body was reacting to the vaccine appropriately, making an immune response. You'll tend to have a higher heart rate. Your temperature can go a bit higher for a couple of days. Um, the odd patient will notice their heart skip for a day or two. If they're already prone to that, it can get a bit worse after the vaccine. Anything mm-hmm. more serious, though, has not been well demonstrated. Atrial fibrillation, ventricular arrhythmias don't seem to be caused by the vaccine. So, no, the risk from the vaccine is, is very low. Yeah, it, this interesting. This guy had uh, high heart rate and blood pressure for about eight weeks. Anyway, Dr. Weisler, we'll talk about that again. We'll get you back on the show. Thank you so much for the great information. Appreciate it. Thank you, Maureen. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Thanks for joining me this evening. Uh, it's the time of night uh, that a lot of we go to bed together. <laughs> Not much longer, but I can go to bed as well. Um, those clandestine affairs, they happen in the workplaces, they happen online, they happen at universities and colleges. Um, very exciting, right? that secret relationship, that clandestine, nobody knows. It's our little secret. It may not be accepted by family and friends, and that's why it is secret. And it's always exciting, right? Not necessarily, but that is what pop media would have people believe, that couples who sneak around together, uh, especially on the movies and TV, they are full of passion and it's always exciting. But That may not be the case in real life. Research suggests that the reality tends to be quite different. You can imagine if you're hiding something, that would not be the most comfortable thing. And in fact, secret relationships are likely to fare much worse in most respects than non-secret relationships. Just the, the stress and the pressure of having a secret relationship. And then typically, people don't always keep the secret all the time. Many, many times I, I am, I mean, I, I'm a registered nurse and confidentiality is critical for me. I am bound by the college. Um, and, you know, whether it be health related or uh, personal related for somebody, you know, personally related, people are always, you know, they'll say, you know, I need this to be confident and in, kept in confidence. And, you know, I, I always describe this one situation where I say, I will never tell anybody don't worry. I mean, I, I did go to Catholic school and I remember the uh, a nun telling a story about how her son, um, you know, had, had kept his confidence and was not going to, you know, somebody's kept somebody's confidence and just was never going to turn uh, somebody in. So it's been ingrained in me in addition to my professional responsibilities. But, um, but I also, uh, we had a neighbor once who was separating for her, from her husband and and so she said to me, please don't tell anybody that, you know, my husband has left and, you know, I don't want anyone to know. And I said, of course, I won't tell a soul. I didn't tell anybody. And then a year later, we had a block party and somebody said to her, where's your husband? And she said, didn't, well, we're divorced now. Didn't Maureen tell you? And she said, Maureen, didn't you tell her? And I said, no, I didn't. Because she said, why? I said, because you asked me not to. And she said, that was a year ago. I said, it doesn't matter. You, you never, you know, it's not typically something I do anyway, but um, but if your secret is safe with me. <laughs> but the problem is sometimes people cannot keep their own secret. And so that's a stress. And so they feel that pressure to tell somebody else 
about it. And then that person may have an opinion or that person may actually tell someone else. And then there's the stress of that. And so you can see where this type of thing uh, could grow in a very uh, negative way. But specifically, greater secrecy around relationships is associated with feeling less love and less attraction for one's partner, as well as less distress about the thought of ending one's relationship. But um, when Dr. Justin Laymiller uh, did some research around diverse non-student samples, it was found that in secret relationships, um, people reported feeling less committed to their partners. And they, these folks also reported that the experience of secrecy itself, as I mentioned, was very stressful. It's not easy to keep a secret, but if you, but there is a way you can do it. You just take that information from people and just, you have confidence that you will never share that information. But um, when people have the you know, feel like they have this burden of a secret, the feelings of stress are linked to reports of worsening physical and psychological health. And so secret relationships may also have implications that extend to one's personal well-being. In a one-year longitudinal study of secret relationships, people who were hiding their romances were more likely to break up over time. And so there is a greater risk of breakup for secret partners, and that's attributed to having lower initial levels of commitment to the relationship because it can just be much too stressful for people. Um, you know, having a secret crush, playing footsies under the table, flirting, that kind of thing. You know, it's not the same. It, it, that can be exciting. Those activities, a lot of people find excitement online. I, I speak to clients, patients, if you will, um, online, uh, you know, virtually, um, about, and they are telling me about their secret crushes, um, online of oftentimes it's married people that are unhappy in their relationships and they are finding excitement. Just, they've never met the person, but they have this secret from their spouse. It's very exciting for them. It makes them feel more attractive. It makes them feel younger. It makes them feel happier. Uh, so in those situations, it can be a bit of a short-term excitement um, that can occur for sure. Um, but that's not the same as having an ongoing relationship that you're trying to hide every single day from your family, from your friends, from your coworkers, and coworkers who may suspect that something is going on in particular, or oftentimes friends might suspect that, or, or your family members may not approve of somebody that you're having a relationship and that can cause a lot of stress as well. But um, so as, as I say, secrecy can be exciting in some very specific contexts. You know, I, what comes to mind is a secret one night stand or in the early stages of an affair, it can be very exciting, but then that excitement can turn to stress. And I've certainly heard that from my patients as well. Um, and it's also, um, you know, can be very, very hard on somebody's mental health, emotional health, physical health. And so I would caution uh, against having a secret relationship, especially if you're having additional stress in your life. Um, but it's, you know, it's not always the worst thing, um, you know, but go into it with eyes wide open for sure. There are some benefits for many people who are involved in secret relationships. There is this fulfillment of intimacy, whereas that is an, oftentimes the biggest problem in sexless relationships and sexless marriages. I'm not condoning extramarital affairs, but it is something that it can be a, a benefit for people and also sexual needs as well. Uh, may outweigh the cost. They, they may outweigh the cost of the stress particularly in cases where secrecy is perceived as one's only option for having that relationship. And what comes to mind there is, is families who are against uh, somebody in their, a member of their family having a relationship with a certain person, a person from a particular background, or um, which I am completely opposed to any familial pressure or, or families choosing um, uh somebody for, for a person choosing a life partner, except in the case of arranged marriages, because I do think that arranged marriages have 
um, benefits in terms of introducing, you know, especially as they have evolved, the it's it's almost like a blind date. It's fixing somebody up, and so when it's done in that way, but when it's somebody that you've uh, fallen in love with, and your family would be against them because they have been divorced, for example, in the past, um, a lot of people, you know, would look would look down upon that. Um, or if they're from a certain socioeconomic background, if they're not from the same socioeconomic background. So a family um, may be against somebody having a, someone who's much older than they are or much younger than they are. But, you know, it's very important that you're in a relationship with somebody that you have chemistry with and especially sexual attraction and sexual chemistry is critical, very important. And, and families often forget that. They're, they're more thinking about the exterior, how it all looks on the outside, that it's all perfect, that, you know, my daughter married a, a doctor or engineer or whatever, um, so that they can spout that to their friends. I, I've had a, I remember a patient in my clinical practice, she was very upset that her daughter was in a relationship with a much older man, but the daughter was very much in love. They were very much committed to one another. And, um, I, and, and he was a good person. I said, what's the problem? You know, uh, well, what her friends were going to think of that. And it's like, who cares? The friends aren't going to be around <laughs> for that long. What the mother's friends, the mother was older, obviously, um, than the daughter. And it's like, who cares what, what anyone thinks about that? You know, he's a good person. They're in love. They have, a, they've had a long-term relationship. You know, it's not about what other people think. It's never about what other people think in life. Um, you know, there's different types of secrecy. So people who only hide their relationship out in public, but can be open about it with their family and friends, they are likely to find the experience much less stressful than those who have to hide their relationship from everybody. So the nature of a secret relationship likely depends on a number of factors, including the reasons that a person is hiding their relationship and from whom the secret is being kept though. But, but the point of this little segment is that these uh, secret relationships may not maintain their excitement um, throughout the relationship and they don't tend to be as happy and healthy as relationships that are out in the open. Of course, nobody's is happy um, living a false life or living a lie. It's very, very challenging to live a lie. And you don't want to keep a secret or keep things secret, I should say, unless you believe that you absolutely have to. Anyway, I think it's uh, interesting. I think there's a lot of secrets that do go on in people's lives, especially in their intimate lives. That's certainly what I hear from my patients in my clinical practice. And uh, that has not changed over the years. So, but you know what? Your health is your wealth. And that's the most important aspect of your life. And if it's affecting your mental health, your emotional health, your physical health, it may be time to take another look. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.